Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. Nigel Roebuck joins us to look back at Nicky Lauder's 1984 World Championship victory by just half a point. For this week's Autosport podcast, we're heading back to 1984 to look at the closest world championship battle in Formula One history. Nicky Lauda beat Alan Prost by just half a point. My name is Ed Straw, the editor-in-chief of Autosport, and we've got, well, a perfect person here to take us through that season. The great Nigel Roebuck, obviously, who was covering Formula One in 84 for Autosport and uh, and has all uh, the stories, those that you can remember at least, uh, about what went on that year. So thanks for joining us, Thank you. Nigel. Thank um, Take us back a little bit to 84. Obviously, it's a very, very different world to the current Grand Prix world. It's also a Formula One that was in quite a state of flux in that period. Obviously, the early 80s had been very disruptive in all sorts of ways, technologically, politically. Things were just starting to settle down and we were, this is the first kind of year of the the undisputed turbo era, I guess. Yeah, it was. It was, um, in, in 84, it was just Tyrrell. Prior to that, you know, I'm in Williams Harm for a long time. Um, and we had this kind of mixed grid for a while with half the grid with DFVs and half with sort of in varying degrees stumbling turbos, you know, which which blew the DFVs away, you know, while they lasted. 
but by '84, it was it was essentially a turbo a turbo formula. Yeah, and there were a lot of changes for '84. We, uh, you know, um, uh, notably Alain Prost leaving Renault and coming to McLaren, um, which was, you know, a, a, a story in itself. And Michele Alboreto was new at Ferrari. Um, and of course, it was also the year we first saw Senna in a in a Formula One car. So yeah, plenty plenty going on. And of course, that point about Prost going to McLaren, I guess this is the starting point for the the defining battle of the season with him and Nicky Lauda. Obviously, Nicky Lauda was quite happy with John Watson as his teammate. They'd had a few <laughs> battles on his on his day. John Watson was a very formidable teammate, but he delayed a little on his contract, and then Prost sort of stole in after falling out with Renault. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm afraid John blew it. Um, he was he was hanging on for what he thought he was worth, um, which was more than Ron Dennis thought he was worth. Um, so there was a kind of stalemate. Um, and it almost certainly in the end would have been resolved, save that uh, Prost then most unexpectedly split with Renault. So he was on the market. Um, and frankly, you know, once that was the case, that was really the end for John. Well, it's, um, it's interesting I mean, looking at the looking back in the the issues early season that you've got John Watson trying to get in all sorts of places Brabham teams like that yeah. and it's amazing that a driver who was performing very well in 83 yeah. suddenly was left on the shelf yeah but you know <laughs> I mean he was undisputably indisputably the greatest driver of the moment um, and he was sort of you know for a time he didn't have anywhere momentarily didn't have anywhere to go and it's actually, to, to my mind, it's very similar to the Alonso situation now. I consider him the best, and um, he ought to be in one of the best cars. But, you know, it's obviously not going to happen. Well, that was interesting. Obviously, you want the best drivers in the best cars, but it wasn't obvious that McLaren necessarily was the best place to be. Obviously, you had the new tag engine, the, the Porsche-developed engine. John Barnard's MP42 was quite a late arrival uh, pre-season, so it didn't have a great deal of running. So it took a while, I guess, before everybody realised just how dominant that McLaren was. Yeah, oh, it was incredibly late, late arriving. I mean, uh, uh, Prost did his deal with um, with McLaren, um, and I guess no driver of his quality has ever been paid so little uh, for a Grand Prix season because, you know, all the cars were with Ron, um, you know, and I needed a, um, a drive. But, you know, he accepted it, and he, and he also, the car had a test, as far as I remember, it did have, I think it was just one test, I think, before, before the first race. Before, yeah, I think it was running Rio, didn't it, before, did they have a Rio test? And yeah. It, and I think yeah. they had a brief shakedown maybe in Europe. I think it had a brief shakedown in Recar. Yeah. Uh, and I know, Prost drove it there, um, and set, on the grapevine, there were suggestions that he'd set shattering times. Um, so that and he and certainly the first time he drove it, he just thought this is like nothing I've ever been in. So yeah, they were they, the car was very late. Um, I mean, you could say that was typical JB in a way. I mean, it was um, you know it'll be ready when it's ready. But of course, then they went to the first race and uh, and 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 Prost won it. Even then, it was it was hard work, wasn't it? I think looking back at it, because Prost made a poor start and he dropped back to tenth, and Lauda was fourth on the first lap. So yeah, even at that point, 
you weren't really seeing what was happening. Obviously, Derek Warwick was was up front in the, yeah, in the yeah, Renault, so yeah, Renault yeah, was sure. still looking strong. We're yeah. expecting Ferrari to be strong. Yeah. So it was it was interesting. I guess you got a hint of the the McLaren performance as Prost yeah, came you through did, to win. That, that's true. But in, in point of fact, it was the second. It was Kyle Army that really got it across just what this car was, um, because um, Nicky won. Um, and I'm trying to remember why Alain started at the back. I think it was a fuel pump failure. Start, so he start from pit lane. Yeah, he started yeah, in the pits yeah. in the spare. Yeah, um, and and from there came through to second. And everybody that really did make everybody sort of think, "Wow, this you know this 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 car is something." Lauda wasn't actually very happy at that point because, um, as you said earlier on, I think he'd been very uh, you know he'd been very comfortable with uh, with Watty there. I think in Nicky's mind, he always believed he could beat Watty if he if he needed to, he could beat him. Uh, and suddenly, this uh, little guy from France was there, and he was in Nicky's mind, he was a kind of unknown quantity. He didn't know what to make of him, and he was he was initially very suspicious. And in point of fact, I mean, later in the year, came to see that there was nothing whatever duplicitous about Prost. I mean, he was, you know, he was. Um, but, and if, and they actually became, uh, I was going to say, f- probably friends isn't quite the word, but they but they had a they 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 did have a very good relationship because they did trust each other. But initially, Nicky was sort of, uh, not, uh, 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 who is this guy? It was interesting actually because um, as part of our 1984 special retro issue, Ben Anderson interviewed Nicky Lauda earlier this year, and, and Nicky described the relationship with Prost as it wasn't a, a Lewis Nico. Uh, Lewis Hamilton, Nico Rosberg type situation in terms of it being disrupted. No, 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 it wasn't. It wasn't. But I think apart from anything else, fortunately for both of them, they had very similar tastes in setup. So essentially what worked for one worked for the other. Nicky therefore became far more at ease about about Prost testing a lot, which, which of course, which he loved to do. Uh, he, you know, I mean, Prost was always like that. He always, he was always, that was... When he was Senna's teammate, you know, he always did the bulk of the testing because he, he just loved to do it. Um, so Nicky became much more confident that, well, if Alan tests it and he says this is what we need, this is what we need. So that helped the relationship as well. And I guess it hit home quite early in the season how the battle between the two was going to shape up because, broadly speaking, over the season, Prost was the better driver, wasn't he? He was the quicker, oh, conclu- emphatically con- 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 Conclusively. Um, and in fact, I mean, when one looks back on Prost's career now and remembers him, it's sort of quite hard to believe now that at that stage in uh, in '84, he was particularly in qualifying. Uh, I remember Nicky saying, you know, he goes through gaps that I wouldn't look at, and one tends not to. One doesn't think of Prost as being, you know, you know, a guy who really hung it out. He was always, you know, controlled and and, and intelligent about the way he went racing. Um, but he really was, uh, when he needed to, he always, I mean, even in his last season in Barcelona, I mean, Patrick had always said this qualifying lap at Barcelona was the best he ever saw by anybody. So he could do it. If he, if he needed to, he could do it. And that year, he, uh, he was still sort of relatively, you know, early in his Formula One career, whereas Nicky was anything but. And so I think that was just the fact that Alain was prepared to, do things, take some risks, and uh, you know that Nicky wasn't, and he also was plainly quicker. Well, if you look at it, the statistics are remarkable. Obviously, Nicky 
pretty much set qualifying to one side very early in the season. He realised he couldn't really do much about Prost and he wasn't too worried about working on the car for the massive power outputs. But Lauda, I think his best qualifying was third, so he wasn't on the it front was. row at all, no, which no. is inconceivable to someone coming in the championship. Absolutely, and I think, uh, I'm trying to think now, the deciding race in uh, in Estoril, um, I th- Prost, as far as I remember, was on the front row with Piquet, uh, but Nicky was back, I don't know, is he about 11th or something? But the fact was, you know, uh, he was... He he didn't panic because no, Nicky never did. He just the race started and he knew he had to be second to be champion. So that was all that mattered. And he picked people off and picked people off. And then he was fortunately got up to third. Prost was leading as he had um, pretty much from the word go. And Mansell was second. Um, and Nicky was not going to catch Nigel. And unfortunately, Nigel. For, fortunately for Nicky, Nigel retired, and there was Nicky in the second place he needed. And it was a it was a very good drive, Esteril from Lad. Exactly. Again, oh, absolutely. In, in the recent interview he did with he did with us, he said there was a a stone chip or something. A stone hit the turbo, mm-hmm. so he didn't quite have the even the full power. So right. I think he went into the race thinking, well, this will be quite easy just to work my way through. Then it was made that bit harder, yeah. which is why he spent some time dicing with people that in other races he would have dealt with briefly. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's true. No, I mean, I think uh, I also, as far as I remember, I didn't. Uh, I think Prost won five, seven races, and Nicky, Nicky, five. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was seven, five. Yeah. And fundamentally, situation was that if Prost finished, he won. Quite often, you know, the races Nicky won, Prost wasn't uh, wasn't around at the uh, you know at the end. It's interesting to look at that season, isn't it? Because I've read all sorts of the contemporary reports from it and there was one school of thought that said there were times when as you were mentioning Prost perhaps took a few risks he shouldn't have one of the things people cited was Dallas when late on he he clipped the wall but he was far from the only driver to do that that day so do you think that was was fair was Prost purely unlucky or if he'd if it had been the Prost of four or five years later the the arch calculator do you think he'd have won that season um yeah 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 for sure sure um I mean, if you remember, one of the great controversies of the year was Monaco, which was stopped. And it's interesting to think back now. I mean, were we faced with those conditions now? I mean, the race would never have even started, let alone, you know, let alone do we stop it or let it carry on. I mean, they were absolutely horrendous. So... um. I personally thought it was the right thing to do to stop it. Um, but, of course, you could, as, as you can imagine, there were the, instantly there were tales of a conspiracy theory because Jackie X was the clerk of the course and he was he was a Porsche man. And, of course, McLaren had the, the tag engine, which was a Porsche engine. Ludicrous, ludicrous tales. I mean, if I've met anybody with integrity in motor racing, I would say it's Jackie X. But the race, anyway, the race was stopped and so Prost did just win it by a hair from Senna. Um, and of course, but they were awarded half points. Um, so in point of fact, if that race had gone the distance, I don't think for a second Bross would have won it. In fact, I think, I think Senna, Senna probably would have won it, or Beloff might have well have won it. That's not impossible at all, because when it was stopped, uh, Ayrton was catching Anna, but Beloff was catching Ayrton. So... No, we'll never know how that would have, you know, wound out. But it, I've, I've thought about that often. Uh, but the point is, if 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 um, Prost had been second in that race and have gone the, gone the distance, he would have 
finish the season with more points than he did. Yeah, and six and, points. And he, uh, and, he, and he would have been champion. Of course, because Lauder had been one of the many drivers to, to go off in that so race. Yeah, yeah that's no right, Casino there. Square, yeah. yeah. But it's interesting, actually. We, again, in the, in the magazine, had a bit of a look back at Monaco and spoke to Ix about it. Mm-hmm. And Jackie Ix, the response to it was basically to say that he kind of started that trend for accepting that if it was just too wet, then you needed to, to stop the race. And there was no point in just waiting for Senna and Prost and the few cars that were remaining to to chuck it off because there were, there were so many driver right. well you say driver errors but the conditions yeah. were so dreadful yeah. and yeah. the other interesting thing is looking at the the lap times because there's this, always this question of whether he was justified to stop it so mm-hmm. i had a look at the lap times of the of the top six in the closing stages and i think from uh, the last six or so laps the top six all dropped off by about 5.3 seconds on average. Is that right? So How much is that? The, the drop-off was clearly there. And incidentally, yeah. Beloff was the one that dropped off the, the least. I think yes. he dropped off yes. about yes. 3.8 seconds yeah. of that. So yeah. Yeah. it says that, although there's this, this great myth about Monaco, mm-hmm. justified to stop, wasn't mm, it? Absolutely. Yeah, that, that was, I thought, in a way, that was kind of the first day we saw the real Santa. First of all, he was, I mean, he obviously drove a sensational race. Um... I think he was fortunate in the sense that he had less horsepower than than uh, the you know the the accepted front runners, so therefore the car was probably a bit a bit easier to drive. He did certainly have to come through the field. I, I remember that, but it was a sensational drive, and um, of course it was the talk of the place and everything else. And you sort of sort of might have thought this was like his I don't know his fifth Formula One race or whatever. Um, and he'd had a drive like that, made a showing like that. Well, you know, you might have thought he would have been quite sort of exhilarated and, and pleased. He was not at all. He was he was furious. He was absolutely livid that you know that the win had been taken away from him. Well, that says something, doesn't it? That yeah, yeah less, a lesser driver might have been delighted with yeah. second. Yeah, that's true. Winning, winning. The with interesting it. thing, actually, the other thing about that race was because it was wet. I mean, you know. Um, Physically, wet races always take less out of the drivers, obviously, because of the G-forces and so on. Um, and one thing that always has struck me as interesting and remembering those days, in 84, his first year in Formula 1, Senna was perilously unfit, which, when one thinks of the, you know, the the, the, the sort of the force he became, the sort of special force in all respects, I mean, he was, you know, no weaknesses, super fit and everything else. You think of the, the you know the man of, the, of his of his later years. He wasn't like that at all in '84. And in fact, at Kyle Army, I remember. I think he I think he finished. I think he got a point at Kyle Army. But I remember being in the pits afterwards and and seeing the um, seeing the mechanics lifting him out of the car, um, which you know doesn't square at all with the uh, you know the, the 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 figure we remember and the figure he you know he he, uh, he later became. He completely underestimated that aspect of um, of the jump from from F three to Formula One. And another thing, I mean, curious. While we're on Senna, that comes back to me in Dallas. We when we got there, there was a lot of talk about, oh God Almighty, this track, you know, this is not this is going to be lethal, and it was too quick, and there weren't enough run. The runoffs weren't big enough, and everything else. So they gave them a session on the Thursday to get to drive around and find out about it, and. Um, Ayrton left the pits, got to the first corner, and nearly hit a wall for the reason, the, the very good reason, that when he put the brakes on, his helmet slipped down over his eyes because he hadn't done the chin strap up. 
again, you know, you think of Senna the perfectionist, but but in '84, you know, we were talking about a very different. Um, I mean, he was he was in many ways a very raw, you know, uh, novice, huge speed, but um, you know, a, a lot of the sort of peripheral things were just not there yet. Well, it's interesting to look back, isn't it, and see how he was regarded at, at that time. I mean, was there the feeling that this was a guy, if he just sorted out those little areas of weakness, would go on to become what he became? Or was he kind of lumped in in the same category with the Beloffs and the, the Brundles, in fact, who I've seen his first no, season no, as well? No, he was, he was I mean, I, I, it's, it's difficult to talk about Beloff because he had such a, you know, such a short career. I mean, in my head, I, I, I always thought Beloff was going to be Germany's first world champion. Um, and, but we saw so little of him. Um, and you know, when all said and done that year, I was like Martin. You could, how do you judge people? You know, driving a a, a Tyrrell Cosworth, not not easy to uh, sort of rate them against others. Save Belloff's drive at Monaco, but no, even that year. I mean, we knew it's it was the same when Michael showed up at Spa the first time in the Jordan. You know, I, he all right. He did the clutch on the line, and he did you know <laughs> halfway up the hill to Eruge and stopped that but that didn't matter because we'd already seen enough you know we'd seen enough from qualifying and sometimes drivers come along like that and from the very beginning there is just something about them you get skinny and it's it's quite indefinable it, you just sort of sense this is a special force you know and this is this guy is going to be crucial in the coming years so yeah, you certainly would say that of him. Um, and different aspects of his character began to come out, you know, as the year progressed. I mean, uh, as he showed in uh, in August by, you know, ignoring his Tolman contract and signing a contract with Lotus for uh, for 85. I mean, <laughs> you can't pretend you don't have a contract. He didn't even discuss it. Well, it was amazing, wasn't it? Because it even led to him being benched. For a race by Tolman, it did. He he um, he. When this all blew up, um, I remember Alex Hawkridge and so on at Tolman. Of course, they were predictably pretty upset. Um, and yeah, that was his punishment. They stood him down at Monza, but of course, Ayrton, being Ayrton, still came to Monza anyway, and um, he was. When all this blew up, I wrote a fifth column about about it, and it was quite harsh, uh, as I think it needed to be, because you you, you know you can't just ignore the fact you've got a column, a, you know, a, a contract. Um, and anyway, got to Monza, um, and several times saw Senna in the paddock and the pits. And you know you can sense when somebody's upset, and he he would not make eye contact with me. And I thought, oh God, you know, I, uh, because whereas PK never read a word about himself, uh, Etten read everything. So I, I mean, I thought, well, that's got to be what it's about. You know, he's he's read the column and he's 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 angry about it. Anyway, we went through the weekend, and he refused to make eye contact, and and then finally we got to the. Um, to the airport on um, Sunday night and he was there um, and he saw me and then he couldn't contain it any longer um, and came over and said ah, you know, I said, Etten, you know, 
you had a contract, you have a contract with Dolman, and you've, you've just blithely ignored it. You've signed this contract with voters. You can't pretend that the Tolman contract doesn't exist. You know, it's a. Um, and I, he said a strange thing. He said, I, I thought you were my friend. And I said, that has nothing to do with anything. I mean, I'm, you know, that's not what I'm paid to do. I'm not a PR man. I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm here to to write what I what I think I see and, and uh, you know, offer an opinion. And that's my opinion. And in the end, he kind of came around and we shook hands and everything else. Um, but I always, it always stuck in my mind, it, you know, that really, that was the thing about it. And you were, if you weren't for him, you were absolutely automatically against him. That was how he saw it. We got along very well for a long time. Um, I mean, I've, I'm thinking back now. I was in the Autos Board office, I remember, in 83 one day, and um, the phone rang, and I answered it, and it was this voice. And he was looking for Jeremy Shaw, who was then the Formula 3 correspondent in Autosport. Um, and I said, oh, he's not in. I'll, you know, I'll give him a message. I, I said, who is it? Uh, and he said, uh, it's Ayrton De Silva, as he was at that time. And I said, huh. And he said, well, who's that? So I told him. And he said, ah, well, I need to meet you because I'm going to be in Formula One next year. And in fact, that was the that was really the you know the first time I met him properly. I went over to um, Isha, where he was then living, and we went out for a hamburger. And that was you know that was how we sort of got to know each other. So we always got on okay with him, even well with him a lot of the time. But the abiding problem I had, of course, as time went by, was that I was I was always quite close to Prost, and that was inevitably that was going to you know that was going to cause a problem. I guess that's the ultimate with him or against him situation. Well, it? It, it absolutely was, yeah, yeah. And it was some, the only guy I, I ever came across who managed somehow to have an excellent, I mean, a really excellent relationship with both was Joe Ramirez, mm. and I never understood how he did it. And he can't, he couldn't even, <laughs> he couldn't even explain to me because he didn't know himself. <laughs> Just luck. <laughs> Looking back at this this championship battle at the front, obviously we're a, lot, a few years off the the Prost Senna wars, but that Prost louder side of things was ever ever that feeling of being behind one or the other because there was a lot of suggestions that within McLaren they were much more for Prost there were there were some reports in in the, the media suggesting that McLaren were actively favoring Prost rather than perhaps passively doing so I don't think they ever did anything in terms of uh, equipment or anything like that to uh, to favor Prost I think there isn't any doubt that they they all wanted um or, or let's say most of them were hoping that Prost would uh, would win the championship. Um, I mean, first of all, you know, uh, uh, he he instantly fitted in at McLaren. I mean, he 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 just was. Uh, he if, if, you know he was um, you know in later years described himself as a McLaren driver with a Honda engine, and and he, as he said, you know, son as a Honda driver with a McLaren chassis. Uh, which was also, I think, the case. And also the fact that he was patently the quicker of the two. Um, and another thing that came up, of course, was that, you know, as the year went on, it became clearer and clearer and clearer that Renault were trying to get Nicky for 85, and they were offering him a King's Ransom to go. And he was, you know, very seriously considering it. Whereas Anna was on a long contract and was definitely going to be there in '85, so he was the future anyway. And of course, he was much younger. 
so um, you know he was he was he was the future. So I think in '85 there wasn't any doubt at all. I mean the whole team wanted Prost to win the championship, and he duly did. Uh, but I think Ronaldo wasn't really up to it. No, he wasn't. Year, was he? No, no, he wasn't. No. Um, but I think even in '84 there was a kind of general hope in McLaren's that uh, that Alain would do it. So, but I I don't as far as I have no memories at all of any favoritism in terms of uh, you know new bits and pieces or anything like that. I think well, they was, certainly had equal rights the on the spare car and everything. They did so absolutely, very, yeah, yeah. It was very true. straightforward. Yep, they did. Nicky ultimately did know as well that he was the lesser driver overall that year. He he wouldn't have been fooling himself about. Oh, he certainly no, doesn't no. today, and I'm sure no, at the no, time no, knowing no, him. No, 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 ever, ever the realist. But you know, you've got to hats off to Nicky in '84 because, um, I mean, as we said, Pross won more races. Uh, he led. I think nearly three times as many laps. Yeah, it was three hundred and forty-five laps for Prost, one six eight for Lauda. Okay, <laughs> okay, <laughs> have that to hand. Yeah, you know that's. <laughs> I'm impressed. Um, so, you, but you really have to take your hat off to Nicky in the sense that he realised very quickly, I'm not uh, particularly in qualifying. I'm not going to get anywhere near this guy. Um, so, okay, so how am I going to do this? How am I how am I going to win this championship? What what have I got that he doesn't have? Um, and of course, you know, more than all the rest of them put together, Nicky had guile, and, you know, patience, and guile, and but still able to turn it on, you know, when he when he when he had to. But but he but he knew that in a straight fight he was never you know he was, he was not going to beat Prost. Well, just to kind of underline it, looking at the qualifying positions, looking at pace. Prost was, on average pace, the, the strongest qualifier of the year, even though PK did get more poles in the Brabham. Mm. And you've got to go all the way down to, to eighth to see yeah. louder. That yeah, just emphasises yeah. how much work he, yeah. was, he was putting in in the races. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, he did. Um, but it takes us back to a point we were saying earlier on uh, as well, that the fact he was able to do that, of course, does speak volumes for how good the MP42 was. Do any races from Lauda stand out for you that year? Um... No, funnily enough, there's no particular drive that comes back to me. I mean, he, it was he was he, Nicky never made a drama out of anything, as you know. I mean, he was, you know, I remember he walked it in South Africa because because Prost started at the back and uh, and nobody threatened him at all there. Um, but no, there's no particular drive that uh, you know impresses me, although. I guess probably Esteril came closer than than any other because he looked to have a, a you know a real mountain to climb that day and he and he, and he did mm. had some luck but he but he did and I guess in many ways I guess t- today there'd be all manner of criticism about a driver winning a championship in that in that manner but actually if you look at it a driver who is clearly the inferior in terms of the overall pace mm-hmm. being able to focus on his strong points and do that through the year mm. takes tremendous force of will oh absolutely yeah 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 and and he did he just thought it through he accepted almost instantly that on speed he was not going to get near pros so all right so how do i do it then um and i mean ladder was always a driver anyway who sort of you know all the way through practice and qualifying his focus was always on the race the race the race and that year, more than any other, I mean, he boy, did he really put that into into uh, into practice. And he made the other thing was, you know, he made extraordinarily few mistakes. 
I remember when he in Monaco when he spun at Casino Square. It was one of the, you couldn't quite believe you know what you were uh, what you were seeing. Um, but of course, as time went by, uh, that was what we also always said of Prost. You know, Prost didn't make mistakes. Lada had his spin at the Nurburgring, didn't he? Which wasn't very costly in the that's end. That's right. That, I guess that says something about how hard he was having to. Yes, try. that's true. That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. We briefly mentioned PK in passing. There, obviously, he was the the king of qualifying, effectively. Even though Prost's sort of average pace was a little bit better, but mm-hmm. PK had nine pole positions to Prost's three. Mm-hmm. The Brabham was a a very quick car, but also an extremely fragile car with yeah. a with a turbo engine that was built around a, a production, production block. Yes, uh, exactly. And apart yeah. from that one week in the middle of the season when he won back-to-back races, that yeah. he, he was just never able to get that, the results. That, that was kind of from nowhere, yeah. Um, we had this North American, mid-season North American tour, um, and yeah, Montreal and Detroit, Nelson won, uh, won both of them. Um and I think you know at that point it hardly finished a race. So so to finish two in seven days and you know and win them um, really was sort of you know um, out of nowhere. It had a huge amount of horsepower that engine. There wasn't any doubt that it you know it had more than anybody you know more than any other. But it also had um, heavier fuel consumption than the uh, than the Tag, you know the Porsche. Uh, what's it called? That Bosch Motronic. Yeah. Engine management system, which was, you know, considered absolutely sort of state of the art at the time. Um, McLaren, of all the teams, you know, uh, McLaren really never had any consumption worries. A bit more towards the end of the season, when they um, occasionally run, having to run more boost than they would ideally have liked. But fundamentally, it was consumption was never a, a concern they had whereas for other drivers it was you know it was it was always there which is amazing really when you consider at the start of the season you had people freezing fuel to try and get a bit more in yeah, yeah. Renault struggling yeah. if you had an Alfa Romeo you basically had to spend part of the race yeah sort of cruising in yeah the Alphas were just crazy the um, previous year you know they were using over 300 litres in a race so you can imagine <laughs> the 220 limit was something they really didn't look forward to but of course they alone had a v8 a v8 turbo and it was uh it was pretty it was pretty good on horsepower but it but i mean the consumption was simply ludicrous so shiva and patrese fundamentally you know they were running on sort of you know what shiva described as le mans boost <laughs> well it's interesting there's a reference in your season review that i was going through to the fact they started the season trying to kind of eke out the fuel through the race and they realised that was such a dull way of doing it that it was, oh, yeah. it was a bit more fun just to attack it yeah, and then right. lean it yes. off big time. Yes, and if then, they happen to make yeah, it to and the then they were really just tooling round the last <laughs> the last uh, ten laps or so. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. But coming back to the Brabham situation, it's interesting, yeah. isn't it? Because that's kind of the the start of the very rapid decline, wasn't it? Obviously, PK eighty three world champion. They mm. weren't able to win the constructors because they didn't really seem to care about that no. with, with the driver lineup. And obviously, in in eighty four, they had. Teo Fabi, some of the time, although he went full well, time, t- a bit of Carrado. Well, Teo was doing a Mario, wasn't he? Teo, Teo was he was uh, was he driving for for Scythe? For Scythe, yeah. In uh, yeah, in uh, Indy cars, and and his brother Carrado was driving any races that clashed. Teo would do the Indy car race, and his brother Carrado would you know would drive the Brabham. Yeah, I mean it was it, Brabham was pretty much a one man band, 
Um, and I mean, Teo, you know, Teo, Teo could be incredibly quick on a given day, but um, never really saw it that year with uh, with Brabham. Uh, so Nelson was really, you know, as I say, a one-man band. But of yeah. course, he then eventually ditched IndyCar to go full-time at the end of the season. He and did, In yes. fact, Corrado took the, that's right. took the foreside yes, season. Yes, that's right. Handy, yes. though. Yes, handy that's though right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interchangeable. Uh, but of course, PK did drive very well during that year, and I guess oh, that enlivened yeah. the year at this point where there was this inevitability of McLaren winning. They won 12 out of 16 races. Yeah, yeah. But I guess there was always the intrigue of, well, well was, firstly, it, would, would PK be able to get off the that, line? You know, that, that, that it would last. Um, because as I mean, he was he'd be everything nine poles, yeah. So he was always in qualifying. If he wasn't on pole, he was always always right up there. Um, and you know, on a, and on pace, he was really the only the only. I mean, Ferrari were there once in a while, but not a serious concern to McLaren. But Nelson definitely was. And of course, the other thing you have to remember is that that year, eighty four, they uh, in eighty five. Bernie took Pirelli's dollar and, uh, you know, condemned his team <laughs> to uh, to being nowhere. Very, very good in ridiculously hot temperatures, but that only paid that's off right. once. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Yeah, that's perfectly true. Yeah, that's quite that's quite right. Because um, I mean, eighty eighty four was absolutely a Michelin year. It was. Uh, I think I mean Goodyear won a couple of races. I think, as far as I remember. Um, uh, yeah. Well, obviously Zolder was the one where Goodyear had the had the advantage over yes Michelin that's right that's right that's the quickest that's quickest right and that was ever. also the race when um thinking back now uh because we were also in that crazy fuel situation at that time where companies were making literally making different fuels for different races i mean just it, it, it was it was completely it was it was nuts um and zolder the porsche tag porsche engines were uh, were given the wrong fuel and they and they, and they I think both blew up. Yes, that that weekend it just um, it was it was just a perfect weekend for Ferrari. The car was on the pace, the good, suited the Goodyears, and uh, and it was of course the great irony was that was the only time we ever went back to Zolder after Villeneuve was killed, and uh, you know Ferrari Ferrari um, Ferrari won it, and of course number twenty seven as well. Number twenty seven. Yeah, and something else that comes back to me was that unfortunately, as older they'd created, I mean, well, I'm sure we're the best one in the world, but they created this absolutely ghastly, tacky ugh, memorial to Gilles, uh, which they had chosen to cite in one of the pits, mm. on the pit counter. And that, by chance, and we were told it by chance, and no reason to believe otherwise, happened to be Michele's pit. Uh, and that really had an unsettling effect on him, and not surprisingly so. Yeah, I can imagine so, yeah. Just adding to the shadow hanging over Zolder. Yeah, oh, absolutely, yeah. I, I'm, I, I, you know, I always hoped we would never go back there, but we did just that one time. Because Ferrari obviously coming into the season, they'd had a strong 83 with Arnoux and, and Tombay, and then yeah. Alberto coming in, the great Italian hope, yeah. winning the third race of the season. So I guess at that point you're thinking, yeah, Ferrari... Could actually be right in the game here. Well, it was that. Yes, that's how it looked. I mean, they, apart from anything else, they certainly were usually at a disadvantage on tyres because you know Goodyear just weren't a match for uh, for Michelin that that season. Um, but of course, Michelin. I think at the end of eighty four, Michelin went, didn't they? I think, uh, I, think, yeah. I think they pulled out. Yeah. And of course, even for some of the Michelin runners, it wasn't so good because Tolman obviously were a, spe- were a step. 
behind on the on the tyre spec, weren't they? Yeah, for they most were. of the season. They which, were. So yeah. you, you do wonder what Senna and Solomon might have achieved. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, no, that's true. That's were, true. Were things different? Yeah. It's worth mentioning the other good year victory as well, which would have been Keki Rosberg huh. at, at Dallas. Obviously, that's a memorable one for you. You've written your fifth column about it oh, in, yeah. in this, this week's yeah. Auto Sport Mag. And obviously, that was a, a memorable race for <laughs> not, well, not just for, for it was, the it quality of It was kind of, of extraordinary weekend because the, um, I mean, it, it, it's probably, you know, it needs to be somebody of my generation to remember that at that time, this TV program, Dallas, this, uh, this, um, um, well, it was an American um, sort of melodrama, let's say, about this rich, this Texan oil family and all the goings-on. Lots of 10-gallon hats. Lots of 10-gallon hats. And it's, it's, it's amazing now. I, I, I can't think of, a, of, of any television since, program since, that's, that's sort of gripped the world like, like that did. Because the, the sort of central figure was this J.R. Ewing who got shot uh, at the end of one season. That was a great question. Who shot him, wasn't it? It yeah. was it took over the world. Who shot JR? I mean it was it was it was in the papers it was on the box it was it, wherever you turned it, it was who shot JR no, and nobody couldn't wait for the next season to start to find out. So Dallas was kind of um in the news anyway at that time and the two guys who put on the race made sure that they had all the stars of the uh, of the the uh, the uh, TV series there, and in fact, um, Sue Ellen, Jr.'s wife, was it was Sue Ellen who presented um, Keki with his uh, with his with his trophy. I remember, but there were some extraordinary scenes. I mean, I can remember, for instance, there was a a, a, a sort of gantry like they have at Indy, you know, with the with the oh, and Daytona with the um, you know where they wave the the uh, the flags and so on. Uh, it was a gantry for some reason in the pit lane at, uh, at Dallas and Larry Hagman who played J.R. Ewing was up there in this gantry and I remember Manfred Winklehock who was a huge Dallas fan saw him up there and, and spied his, his, there was his great hero up there and Manfred just climbed the outside of this gantry. I remember it was just—it was the most extraordinary thing I've ever seen. Simply to get up to the gantry to shake the hand of J.R. Ewing. So that, uh, it was one of those things about that weekend. It was completely surreal. Alfa Romeo, or Benetton rather, who was Alfa Romeo's sponsor, laid on a big party for the press, um, and that was—and the party was at South Fork. South Fork Ranch, which was the home of the Ewing family, and then this TV company, in this TV uh, series. So, fundamentally, the the whole weekend was was surreal. And of course, we were all there in Dallas for the first time. So, of course, we had to go and look at the Texas Book Depository and the Grassy Knoll and all the rest of it. The, the whole, you know, JFK saga. Uh, but amidst all this, of course, there was this endless controversy going on about the um, about the track, and part of the problem with it was that you know the track, the part the part of the problem lay with the drivers because back in those days, if there was a new track, usually one of the drivers would visit the track weeks ahead of time to inspect it and then come back and report back. Yes, it's okay. No, it's not. Nobody did that for this so that was a big mistake but a bigger mistake was that the FIA one of the rules was and it was in the rules that there couldn't be a, a new Formula 1 race at any track that had not previously had a smaller meeting to establish its 
worthiness. And Rosberg said at the time, you know, if the money's right, these things get forgotten. That's not quite how he put it from reading your column. There's no, some more no, colourful no. language, <laughs> yeah, which is yeah, well yeah. worth reading the fifth yeah. column for. <laughs> um, but he, um, and so, you know, we found ourselves with this problem. And the track was, track actually, as a track layout, the track was pretty good. But they were concerned that the, um, a lot of the corners were marked by these, you know, these concrete temporary um, blocks, um, which were quite high. And, of course, the drivers lying down in their cars and all the rest of it a lot made what it essentially did was make a lot of the corners blind. And the runoffs also were really <laughs> not great. So there was all that. But, on, but of course, on top of that, the, the track surface had, uh, it was a really, I mean, the, it was a fairly sort of, um, uh, it wasn't the, uh, the chic end of town, let's say that. They'd had to repave, re, re, uh, repave the, the you know the, the the roads being used for the track. So it was fresh asphalt, and it had been put uh, put down way too late. It was like the problem we had at Spa actually the following year in eighty five. Oh, yeah, yeah. Exactly the same thing. It was put down too late, and it was insufficiently cured. And in no time at all, it started it started breaking up. And of course, all this was going on in this absolutely overwhelming heat. And it really, I remember by the time we left um, on the aeroplane coming back, I remember three quarters of the people on the aeroplane had terrible colds because all for three, four days, you'd been out in the open and it was, it was way, way over 100 and, and incredibly humid. So what was happening was, particularly with the journalists, what we were doing was, you know, we'd be outside for 45 minutes or so and then have to go back in the press room with the air conditioning to to cool down but so of course you're going you go back to the air conditioning so you're soaked when you come back to the press room and the air conditioning dries you out again and cools you down and you go out for more and you're doing this all the time and you know so everybody had a cold by uh, you know by sunday afternoon <laughs> and i guess for the drivers in the race you've got Two hours <laughs> without any air conditioning. Without any air conditioning. The track was falling yeah, apart. Made worse, in fact, by that can uh, Well, that was the other thing, it, yes. Which is that's the last thing you'd want to put well, on the track. Well, it's true. It's that. true. I mean, this, uh, it was, I mean, we were all quite excited by that. I thought, oh, that's a hell of a good sporting race. A Can-Am can race, you know. It's not like sort of rich, you know, rich guys sort of having fun. This, this, is, this, is, this is a bit serious race. But on the second day, I remember, uh, I think Mansell and De Angelis, yeah, well, they were quickest on the first day. But by the end of that first day, that Friday, the, the track was breaking up badly and they didn't even bother going out on the, on the Saturday Lotus and their times still weren't beaten. So through Saturday, it was getting much, much worse, this, this track surface problem. So then everybody kind of assumed, well, they've got to, they've got to scrap the bloody Can-Am race and they didn't. Um, and you know they're heavy cars and a lot of power, and they, um, <laughs> you know, they 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 tore it to bits. So yeah, I mean, come Sunday morning, there was a, this big debate about you know, are we going to race or are we not? You know, we talk about marbles um, these days, and and there are there were in the worst days of Pirelli high degradation, um, sort of seven lap tires. Uh, you, you remember then that there was a, a clear line that was clean and all the rest of the, the, the road surface was just solid marbles. Well, that's how Dallas was that day, except that m most of the marbles, were, I mean, some of it was rubber, obviously, but most, a lot of it was asphalt that had just been chewed up and thrown aside. 
So the the thing about that, what, you know, Rosberg, people think of Ke- Keki now as a f- sort of flamboyant driver and, and a spectacular driver, and he, and, he, and he was. But he had a, a, a phenomenal flair and, and dexterity and, and, and conditions that really would have, you know, that did catch out virtually everybody else. Like a Monaco, for instance, in 83, when it was, it was, it had been raining, it had stopped, but the track was wet. And Keki went to the grid in his DFV Williams on slicks. And on slicks, on a damp track, in the opening laps, simply left everybody behind. And that was just pure flair uh, and, and, and fantastic car control. And that was what he used in uh, in Dallas. And he was also a very, very intelligent guy, Keki. You sort of think, well, a track that caught out louder and Prost, you know, they, I mean, those guys didn't make mistakes, but they did. And the amazing thing was that Rosberg won, uh, and even more extraordinarily in conditions like that, Arnoux was second, having kept driven through the field, starting from the back. You'd assume Rennie would have been in the wall you know, one of the first to be in the world. He, 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 that day, he didn't make a mistake. Others did, and he did I mean, dare I say, it was like Lance Stroll in Baku. Um, uh, you know, a track like that, other people making mistakes all over the place. And Stroll arrived with a reputation for sort of, you know, making mistakes and you know going off quite a bit and all the rest of it and he was absolutely perfect all day long and Arnoux was the same um but you know you you wouldn't have you know you wouldn't you wouldn't have put a cent on on that happening but it was a really great drive when a grand total of eight drivers were classified in that race although one one of them famously didn't quite get to the line when I was doing the column I was I was looking back to my notebook and I I I mean I don't know if I it was what I wrote at the time, and I presumably thought, assumed it was right then. But I think that I noted down thirteen drivers and hit the wall. Yeah, is that, it was. Is, yeah, was that, thirteen. Yeah, yeah okay. Um, just having a look through that, yeah, because uh, you have to include Prost in that number because yeah, yeah, it absolutely, the, it was the wheel, but the, that was a consequence of hitting the wall. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, it's true. And I mean, that was only that was only ten laps from the end. No, Nigel Mansell was the the driver in question who. He got his fifth place there, and obviously he had the famous trying to push the car oh, across yeah. the line. Yeah, so yeah, was, yeah, uh, yeah, yes. Ever, ever the showman, the drama. Yes, <laughs> yes. I was talking to Bernie not very long ago, and he was he, we just we were reminiscing about Nigel, and he said, "Yeah, he only got one world championship, but he should have had more Oscars than that." <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that that sums it up. But it, I guess we should mention a little bit about Lotus that that year, both Mansell and Elio De Angelis. Of course, De Angelis was the driver who was third in the championship. Yeah, he, he was a long way behind, less than half the yeah, points of Prost and Lauda. But Lotus were re, was fairly solid that year. De Angelis was very very consistent. Obviously, Mansell had his turn in the lead at Monaco in yeah. the wet. He came past Prost about ten laps in, and then had the famous meeting with the white line, yeah, yeah, um, while while leading. But yeah. You know, why was Lotus not quite able to be part of this um, battle? Well, I think it was it was a good, it was a, for ninety five T. I think it was ninety five T. That yeah, yeah. It was. I mean, it was a good car, and and the and the certainly Renault's. There was not not much wrong with Renault's engine, and not much wrong with the drivers either. Mansell was without a doubt was the quicker of the two. They didn't have a great relationship. It kind of improved. They they kind of made their peace, but they didn't they, they didn't really have a great relationship, Nigel and Alio. 
Elio was one of those people, um, I think he had sort of natural talent to throw away. But if if ever uh, I saw a driver who just didn't want it enough, um, people always said, oh, well, that was because he came from such a rich family and he'd always had everything he'd always wanted and all the rest of it. There may have been some, some truth to that. But he had a beautiful style in a racing car and he and he could be blisteringly quick. Pole position for Rio, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes, yes, sure. But I think, I mean, his ambition never matched his talent, put it that way. Whereas, you know, with Nigel, I mean, you know, we know about his his uh, his ambition. And they they were, I mean, at the end of that year, of course, Nigel went off to Williams. Um, and that was, and then really that was the beginning of, you know, where it all, where it all um, started for him. But I think he'd certainly done enough by 84 to establish himself as, you know, one of the sort of handful of really quick drivers around. And a couple of podiums that year, so he yeah, was yeah, getting yeah, some yeah, results, yeah, even though yeah, yeah. he was down in 10th in the championship, yeah. only got 13 points overall to DeAngelis' 34, but yeah, yeah. the sparks were there, weren't they? Yeah, they were, Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. And of course, you mentioned the, the Williams drive, one of the other people who was looked at by Williams later on was Derek Warwick, and obviously this was Derek Warwick's big chance, signed by Renault yep. from Tolman. Yeah. A very strong start to the season, yep. but he yep. was kind of caught up in in Renault's Renault slump. And again, he could he could have won. Well, race, he was. Won a I mean, I mean, year. yeah. Derek was um, at the end. Of, even at the, I mean, at the end of eighty, uh, the end of eighty four, Williams signed Mansell. But before they signed Man, they only signed Mansell because Warwick turned them down. Decided he was going to stay with uh, with uh, with Renault. Which is one of those decisions that, in retrospect, always looks well, a sort of aim stupid, aim but a, actually, Eamon Alonso <laughs> thing, yeah. you could say, because yeah, I mean, he because in '84, Derek didn't win any races, but Renault were pretty competitive that year, and he and he and he led, and he he had, he had several good finishes and so on. Um, whereas in '85, it 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 really went downhill quite, you know, quite fast. So yeah, I mean, he always he always said, you know, that was his great. It's a great mistake not going to Williams when he you know when he could have done. Well, I guess not such a bizarre decision in retrospect when you look at where the things were stacked up at the time in terms because obviously Williams did win a race that year, but it was in extraordinary circumstances. Yeah. So you can yes, oh, absolutely. Well, no, no, he had very good reasons for you know doing doing what he did. Because the other thing you've got to remember about Williams that year was, I mean, it was it was a terrible car. It was it was Williams's first turbo car. It wasn't. A carbon monocoque. It was. It was still an aluminium honeycomb yeah. monocoque, and it just couldn't go. I mean, it used to twist, and you know, it was. It was. It was. You know, altogether. You know, unsanitary. FW ten. Oh ten. FW ten. The next year was the first carbon Williams, and that was a you know night and day. So that was the thing with Williams. It was a combination of of that chassis and also the incredibly abrupt power delivery of the. Uh, of the Honda Turbo, you can see that in the footage. Yeah, you it's can. So it's not subtle, is it? No, no, it isn't. I mean, ironically, in today's world, the one thing the, horse, the Honda didn't lack was power. So it just made for a very, very difficult car to drive, as you say. Keki being Keki, just get you know, got on with it, made the made the best of it. I mean, I think Jack was a bit put off. I think, I think he sort of thought, no, I think I'll just this year I'll settle for a quiet life. Because he still had it in him. Because oh, when absolutely. he went back to Lichio, yes, yes, yes. some very yeah, good performances. Yes, well, he did. Absolutely. Yeah. I guess it needed someone like Rosberg to 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just drag the best yeah, out of it. Yeah, yeah. Without, yes, without any doubt. I mean, um, he will always remain in my head, I think, as one of the, in spite of everything he did, I still think history underrates Keggy Rosberg very much. Well, if you look at it, he rarely had a particularly strong car. Yeah, that's right. So you have to you have to look at it that way. Yeah, yeah. Even going back to his first F1 win, obviously yeah. not a championship. Well, that, absolutely. That was an astonishing yes, victory. Yes, yeah. Yes, it was. I remember going to the, uh, that was the uh, Daily Express trophy, wasn't it, in 78? And I remember at one stage, Mario, well, they all skated off the road. It was in terrible, uh, terrible weather. And at one stage, I went into the um, Lotus caravan, as it was. It wasn't a motorhome, it was a caravan. Chapman was in there. Yeah, I think Mario was in there too. So I was talking to Mario about what had happened. In the background, at one point, somebody said to Chapman, who's leading? Anyway, who's leading at the moment? And Chapman said, Ro- Rosebury? <laughs> so that's how, you know, unknown to the F1 community, Keki was. That's literally making that a name time. for yourself. Rosebury, <laughs> yes. Keki Rosebury. <laughs> but, but a very difficult, a difficult driver to be measured against, I guess. So I think we can probably excuse Lafitte that one. But But the whole Renault situation it did seem to be a team that was starting to fall apart obviously LaRousse was pushed out by the end of the year and they and they got yeah well then they brought this man Gerard Tott in who well if thinking about it now the only the only equivalent I can think of for Gerard Tott was was Marco Mattiacci (laughs) just bring in somebody who knows absolutely nothing whatever about uh, about Formula One he'll be all right he'll run it yeah, right. Was he wearing sunglasses in a gloomy garage? All though? the That's time, the all the time. <laughs> and actually, uh, <laughs> when I think of Gerard Tott, um, something that <laughs> always comes back to me is Gerard Tott at Monaco, forgive me, I'm talking about the wrong year now, this would have been 85. At the end of the day, Tott said to Tommy, I need to speak to you about um, your uh, your driving style. Tommy thought, huh? you know. Well, what do you know about driving style? No, no, I need to speak to you about your your lines, your driving lines <laughs> through Casino Square. You and he proceeded to say Patrick was taking a wrong, the wrong line through Casino Square. For he was too far over on the left for this and too far over that. Patrick said, "Okay, um, but, where, may I ask where this is coming from?" And it turned out that um, Gerard Tot's lady friend had been spectating from a balcony at the Hotel de Paris and looked down, didn't like what she saw in Tom Bain, reported back to uh, to Tot. And on that, Tot was prepared to act and say to Patrick, obviously, you know, my girlfriend says your lines are wrong. So I think we need to talk about this. <laughs> it was a bit like the relationship with Matty Atch and Alonso, you know, <laughs> not a meeting of minds. And of course, I guess Tombe had his moments in that year as well. He did. Dijon was the he obvious did. one. Uh, yeah, absolutely he did. Yeah. Second there after he yeah. led the, the early stages. Yeah, I mean, it's quite easy to forget how good Patrick could be. Well, it was bizarre, really. He was not still in a Ferrari given yeah, his performance level. Yes, that's true. Absolutely. Yeah. At the time, we were all, you know, a little surprised that... that Patrick was pitched rather than uh, Rene. Arnie on his day, magnificent driver. Oh, I mean, maybe on, not yeah, enough days. Arnie on his day was as quick as anybody you'd, you'd ever see. But looking at '84 as a whole, was it, was this a period of Grand Prix racing you liked? Obviously, the the cars had a few years ago with the ground effects weren't perhaps so spectacular to watch. Ultimately, so 
well, F1 was kind of coming back a bit more to where yeah, and it I, I did because the, the great thing about the um, about the cars of that era, the sort of mid eighties, Patrick had sort of said, you know, well, a Formula One car really at that time was really nothing more than a bedstead with a turbo in it. I mean, it, it was absolutely a horsepower, you know, uh, horsepower time. Aerodynamics, I mean, yeah, of course, you know, downforce. We, we we knew all about it by then, had done for for quite some time. But it wasn't the sort of overwhelming thing it is now. If you look at the um, front wings of any Formula One car in 1984, and it's, it's a pretty simple thing. Yeah, rudimentary. No, yeah, but equally, you know, it wasn't quarter of a million quid if you knocked it off. So the aerodynamics were quite primitive, you know, compared with compared with today. But again, you know, the McLarens were better than any other. That was another. That was one of the reasons why MP42 was was you know was the car it was. Um, but I did like those cars, yeah, because the um, in some tracks, on some tracks, it was more apparent than others. But fundamentally, they had more power than they could handle, and I've I've always loved that. Well, it's a simple way of looking at it, isn't it? Unfortunately, there's always yeah. that battle, isn't there, between the desire to have that and the engineers yeah. Yeah. always make the cars, yeah better yeah yeah absolutely i mean something i re- always remember from those years was um for last qualifying at spa we always used to go to eau rouge to watch and it, what was fascinating in those days was that I, I mean today you know i think nico said a couple of years ago you know it, it's easy flat for my mother eau rouge but and, and his father in fact earlier than that had described it as it's become a sandpit for kids uh, but back then it was not like that at all and it was it was anything but flat but it was flat for a center or a prost maybe a couple of times in a in a, in a weekend and it was a real you know we so we go down there and of course the great fascination was to listen to the to the to the engine mode, you know and and if it never changed then everybody kind of just looked at each other huh because you know 99 times out of 100 did change Maybe only for a split second, but it did. It would be a fractional lift. But, you know, I, I always, that was one aspect of racing I always loved. I always loved the idea of corners that were flat for, or, or almost flat, for a, a truly great driver, but not for anybody else. So everybody's raving away this year about, oh, you know, corners are disappearing. Even compared with last year, this is easy flat this year, whereas it wasn't 12. Um, and in point of fact, the drivers may love it, but I don't, because I don't think it's I don't think it separates the um, the great from the good to the degree that it should. So they're not by the same margin. I think we've seen a little bit of a bigger gap. Yeah, on average this year, yeah. getting a bit onto this year now. Yeah, than maybe we saw in the previous generation. But but you don't want a corner, particularly not a great corner like Eau Rouge, to be easy flat for everybody. No, that's very true. Well, you, you want know. it to be a difference yeah. maker, don't you? Yeah, yeah, you do. Yeah. I think so anyway I think most fans probably would as well <laughs> yeah 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 I think you're right yeah there, there is one thing actually from 84 we haven't we haven't touched upon properly which actually is the whole Tyrrell controversy ah. which is probably something to be delved into for several hours but well <laughs> obviously it led to the team being thrown out so even if Stefan Beloff had won at Monaco which was plausible yeah that's race true that's on, true yeah. he would never have won that no, no, no that's true yeah but, that's perfectly right actually i hadn't thought yeah that's right but martin was second to detroit wasn't yeah, he? yeah 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 so those uh those but then immediately afterwards you know had the the, the, the 
worst shunt of the weekend at Dallas. Oh, that was a career changer again for him, wasn't it? It was, absolutely. You can argue he wasn't necessarily quite the same driver. No, there's probably something in that. Whether he'd agree or not, I don't know. But it (laughs) might be, you might have a point there. Uh, Certainly, I mean, you know, to this day, Martin has days, uh, you know, every every day of his life, when he first gets out of bed, you know, his feet and ankles hurt him. But it's so, interesting, isn't it? Because obviously he was, before we get onto the controversy bit, but obviously he was very much the rising star now. I guess he was. later on in his career, I think he labelled himself the best number two in the business at, at one yeah, stage. And that yeah. almost kind of sums up how he's how he's seen, perhaps a little yeah. bit unfairly. But Brundle and Beloff, this was two star up and They, they were, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, sure. And of course, I mean, the other thing was, you know, Martin had that huge under Monaco. I was watching there. And uh, I can... I can I can still see, funnily enough, some some things like this you you do stay in your mind, some a lot don't. But I remember him hitting the wall. I remember the car going over. I remember it coming. I remember it coming past me, still going pretty quickly on its side. And I can remember seeing Martin's head, sort of helmet, scudding along the the tarmac. Um, I mean, it was one of those. Really, was one of those shunts. You just sort of oh Jesus. You mentioned the Detroit second place, but it's Detroit where the whole controversy erupted. Wasn't it was, it? Where they yeah. Found the yeah, hydrocarbon yeah, traces yeah, in the yeah, fuel tank, yeah. and then we had the lead shot controversy, and then it all added up with a season that never happened for, for Well, it, it did. It did. But, of course, apart from anything else, you know, if you're cynical, um, what I'd also did was remove Ken from the voting process. He was the one team boss who was against the keeping the fuel limit the same absolutely because they were talking for 85 about having one, one bring it, lowering it from 220 to 195 um and at the time ken with his dfes you know that suited him that suited him very well and for it to remain at 220 it needed unanimity from the teams and with ken around they weren't going to get that and of course with ken out of the picture they did get that it's one of it's one of those things, you know. They all laugh about it now. They all they all they all laugh about it. They all they all call it cheating now. But but at the time, I mean, not that whole thing, you know. A couple of years before that, with the you know the water cool breaks, and I thought, oh Jesus. Uh, and I mean, and the, the you remember that on the hydraulic suspension? Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, all absolutely blatant cheats. I mean, you know, you really didn't need to be a road scholar to sort of figure out what was going on. But they look you straight in the face and no, 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 we're cooling the brakes or we're doing this or we're doing So I I mean I think I mean I'm afraid I just thought Ken was saying things that weren't necessarily very popular. I think we all assumed well he was just taken care of. He was just sort of, you know, removed from the equation and the two twenty limit staying. And damaging for the team as well, which oh, very, absolutely, I, I have heard it. it I have seen it claimed that that was kind of the point where F one lost a bit of its luster for for Cantor. Uh, Obviously, uh, the Tyrrell uh, team uh, continued. Uh, uh, there's no question, no, no doubt hard, about that. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, it's true. Yeah, and it was. Um, yeah, I mean, it was apart from anything else. It was sad for Martin and uh, and uh, and Stefan. Anyway, I think we've pretty much run through run through everything. Are we, are we, any <laughs> teams we've. I haven't talked about Left Seller. Out. I'm always up to weekend about Seller. Pierre Carlogonzani obviously got yeah, yeah. to finish at, at Dallas. <laughs> Very nice fellow, Pierre Carlogonzani. Actually, and thinking about it, I mean, he had about the biggest accident I can ever remember seeing. At yeah, the warm-up at the car army. Oh, Jesus. It's a 
huge accident. Yeah, it blew the fuel tank and everything. And of course, the other thing about '84, you know, we're talking about the arrival of Ayrton and and Brundle and so on. Um, and of course, it was also the first time we ever saw Gerhard Berger. Of course, in the ATS. Uh, in the ATS, which of course had the BMW engine. And I remember Gerhard's start in uh, in Austria. He was sponsored in that race, incidentally. He put this deal together to do Austria um, for ATS. And this fellow came up to him and said uh, he wanted to sponsor him. And Gerhard, he said, but the problem is I haven't got any money, uh, any, any sort of real money. And Gerhard said, so he did a deal for, I don't know, 10 grand for the helmet or something like that. Well, I would have thought 1984, you know, to an aspiring young racing driver, 10 grand would have been would have been pretty good. But anyway, this was this fellow who didn't have any money. Um, and, of course, turned out to be Dietrich Mateschitz. He's regarded as the first Red Bull driver. Yeah, yes, recently. that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, Gerhard was, I remember, was incredibly brave, incredibly brave right from the start. But something I've ever forgotten was his, his getaway when the race started, away from the grid, and he lit up the rear tyres of this hugely powerful BMW-powered uh, ATS, and it was a tank slapper like I've never seen. I mean, he was in a straight line, but it was it was he was literally going from left lock to right lock to as as the thing went away up the road. I mean, totally, totally out of control. Um, but you know, but being Gerhard, of course, he didn't. He didn't. He didn't lift, and he did hold it. Now, it was just a sight I've never for I've never forgotten that. Yeah, of course. So that was the beginning of that was the beginning of another. I guess it is. It was quite a good year. Yeah, it's kind that. of a a change point. You get these little turnover points, don't you? Where I guess technically you have the McLaren sort of setting the the standards for the integration of Grand Prix cars. You have Senna. Brundle Berger, all of whom would be mainstays of, of Grand Prix racing, and people like Beloff, who who should have been had uh, had things not gone the way that they yeah, would have done. Yeah, so, yeah. so it is no, one of those true. one of those shifts, isn't it? I guess the beginning of well, was sort of in the point where Prost is just about to become a champion. The, yeah, the, the, yeah, the following year. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. No, it was it was it it actually it was looking back on it. I mean, it was it was. It was kind of tragic in a way that Prost, having driven the way he had that year, to lose the championship by half a point, it was almost, you know, too cruel to be, to be, uh, to be true. Particularly as you know, the year before that, of course, he'd he he lost it sort of to to uh, to PK. Well, essentially, Renault threw that away. That, but but so twice he'd been, um, you know, he looked as though he was going to be champion, and uh, you know, and wasn't. It's a remarkable thing about Prost, isn't it? He won four titles. He basically could have doubled that yep. if, if things oh, had gone a little uh, bit different. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, I thought it was really interesting when I was, I was uh, talking to Bernie a few weeks ago. I mean, he, he was just Bernie was looking back on the drivers he'd, um, you know, he'd known and he'd seen, you know, during his time in racing. And of course, for Bernie, the Jochenrin will always be. There'd never be anybody like Jochen, but beyond that, he said, "I said, well, okay, forgetting that, then who?" Uh, he said, "I said, um, Senna, Schumacher." He said, "No, Prost, without a doubt." 
I think Prost is a little bit done down by. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said that man, that man was like Clark, and that he made it look so easy. And Sterling, same, same thing. And he said, and the other thing I always admired about Prost was he never ever tried to influence who his teammate should be. He never ever said, no, no, I'm not having him. He said because he, you know. He said, I mean, he was running McLaren in that by, you know, by the mid-80s. I mean, he could have said no, Senna. Said, I'm not having him to run. But he just said, no, take him. And there are other drivers who went the other way, I guess. Derek Warwick could tell you about that. Well, absolutely <laughs> right. Yes, yes, uh, that's the thing. Yes, Senna. Senna kept Warwick out of Lotus. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's true. Well, I think we've we've delved through 1984 very well. Thanks very much for your for your memories and very reminiscences. Welcome. It's great to be able to speak to someone who was who was there on the ground. Very welcome. So I'd urge everyone to sketchy, uh, but I've I've done my best. <laughs> well, it's all right. We're much less sketchy than uh, than I was anyway. So uh, so that does the job. But I'd, I'd urge everybody to get Autosport Magazine, which is out out this Thursday. Nigel's fifth column on the the Dallas win. Interview with Nicky Lauder. Look back at Monaco '84. We've got Adam Cooper on Senna's first season, so all sorts of stuff about that year to have a look back at if you've uh, enjoyed this podcast. And In the meantime, check out autosport.com for all the latest news and features and our plus subscriber section with all manner of insight and articles. And of course, Nigel Roebuck's fifth column also appears there these days. Thanks very much for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. All because of a fancy bike? It's not just a bike. Peloton makes treadmills, too. Eh, all treadmills are the same. Our treadmills can adjust speed and incline automatically, so you never break your stride. Whether you're squeezing in a power walk or training for a marathon, Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try the Peloton Tread risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Sports Social Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. 
I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.